I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Real Estate for Life. If you're thinking about buying or selling a home or moving to a more family-friendly or Christian area, please consider going to realestateforlife.org. They will pair you with expert real estate professionals who share your faith, and they will also contribute a portion of their commission to a pro-life charity of your choice, all at no cost to you. So to connect with a pro-life realtor, please visit realestateforlife.org or call them at 1-877-LIFE-US-1. Hello and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and I am super excited that you're joining us today. This is a podcast in which we will deliver hope with some formation, where we explore areas of our faith to better understand who we are as Catholics. We at Array of Hope are on fire with sharing the faith in a way that is attractive, riveting, and compelling. Why? Because it is. Throughout our lifetimes, our families are one of the most important components of our lives. We learn to engage with the world through our families. We learn to interact with people through our families. And with many of us, we are introduced to our faith through our families, and more directly, through our parents. So the family dynamic is so important. It is the foundation of who we become as young people and then adults. So I'm super excited about our guest today. She's married to someone that we interviewed in an earlier episode of A Reason for Hope podcast, theologian and author Scott Hahn. So my guest is Kimberly Hahn, and what an amazing woman she is. We're going to talk about her insight on the family dynamic and how to keep our families Catholic. A lot of people have personally uh, reached out to me about this subject, and we've gotten a lot of emails on it as well. So sit back and relax, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. And here we go. So Dave, how are you doing today? I'm good. Good. Yeah, things are pretty good. That's awesome. That's good. That's good. Uh, I'm super excited about today's podcast. Our guest is Kimberly Hahn. And as you know, um, we've had Scott Hahn and I've interviewed him many times. So having interviewing her was a real treat for me. And they're so different. (laughs) And uh, we really touched based on some things that are dear to her in her heart. And uh, we really talked about the family and the importance of family. That's great. She's been really doing so much good for families mm-hmm. and particularly trying to help families learn from biblical wisdom about how to go about their family life. So she's real and she's practical, but she draws her insights straight from God's word. So that's really wonderful. So uh, family is actually God's idea. You know, we, we forget that, right? And there is a sacred order to family. God established this order and it is necessary if the family is going to be all God created it to be. God reveals this to us in the scriptures. Yes, so I'd like to share a few ideas about this. Uh, In St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I think we see this sacred order of the family. Sometimes, by the way, this sacred order is called a hierarchy. Now that has a negative connotation to a lot of people, but it really shouldn't. It just means that there's an order that God has established So in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I'm looking particularly at chapters five and six, we see a few things. The first thing we see 
is this exhortation to husbands and wives. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So who is the one really that both the husband and the wife are under? They're under Christ and the law of Christ. So they love each other in a particular way. They are towards each other in a particular way because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is to them. But notice there's this mutual subjection. And what does that even mean? Well, what that means is that each is looking to the good and the needs of the other. So the husband is looking to the needs and good of his wife, the wife looking to the needs and good of her husband. And so that mutual subjection is really me placing myself at the service of the good of my wife and her placing herself at the service of my good. So that's the first thing I think we can pull in this hierarchy. The second thing is this line that often gets a lot of bad press, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. Now, it's very important that we avoid two extremes. One is the extreme that somehow this means that the husband is a ruler of his wife, right? Whereby she has to do everything he says, no matter what, without any conversation at all. And yet the other extreme that views this simply as a product of the historical time period Paul was writing in and not really relevant today. Mm. So there's these two extremes. Hey, want to help make this podcast better? Go to our survey URL in the show notes and leave your mark on A Reason for Hope. I think this is a great quote, and it's a little bit lengthy, but it's a worthwhile quote from uh, Pope Pius XI in an encyclical letter, Casti Canubi. And he talks specifically about this subjection. He says this, This subjection, however, does not deny or take away the liberty which fully belongs to the woman, both in view of her dignity as a human person and in view of her most noble office as wife and mother and companion. Nor does it bid her to obey her husband's every request if not in harmony with right reason or with the dignity due to wife, nor in fine does it imply that the wife should be put on a level with those persons who in law are called minors, to whom it is not customary to allow free exercise of their rights on account of their lack of mature judgment or of their ignorance of human affairs. But it forbids that exaggerated liberty which cares not for the good of the family. It forbids that in this body, which is the family, the heart be separated from the head to the great detriment of the whole body and the proximate danger of ruin. For if the man is the head, the woman is the heart. And as he occupies the chief place in ruling, so she may and ought to claim for herself the chief place in love. Again, this subjection of wife to husband in its degree and manner may vary according to the different conditions of person's place and time. In fact, 
If the husband neglect his duty, it falls to the wife to take his place in directing the family. But the structure of the family and its fundamental law established and confirmed by God must always and everywhere be maintained intact. So Pius XI in Casti Canubi is saying what Paul was saying back in Ephesians is a fundamental law and structure of the family, right? But you notice how he's also careful to make necessary qualifications. So I think that's an important aspect of this sacred order. Wives be subject to your husbands. Mm. However, here's another one. The husbands have their charge, right? Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, by the way, even if you were to take the wives being subject to their husbands in the most extreme and I would say wrong way, you still have husbands having the tougher job. Why? Husbands have to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? It involved two planks of wood and three nails, right? It involved him dying and suffering for her. So he's got a tall task. Like I said, that's not the right interpretation of what the wives are supposed to do. Right. But let's, let's look at this for what it is. The husband is supposed to lay down his life, sacrifice himself, endure suffering and hardship and pain for his wife. So this is, I think, a tremendous calling. In other words, it's not about you guys. It's not about you. And yet, guys tend to try to make it always about them, right? So there's that other part of that sacred order. Now, St. Paul has something to say to children in chapter six, the very next chapter after talking to husbands and wives. He says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live a long life on earth. Now, notice what St. Paul says. He doesn't say obey your parents if they sound smart. Obey your parents if it suits you. Obey your parents if they give you all the things that you like. It's obey your parents for this is right. This is your duty. This is what is due to them. And not only that, God promises that your obedience is going to be blessed. And notice the analogy here, so that it goes well with you and you live a long life in the land you're about to occupy. The idea is that your life is going to wind up being better off if you listen to your mother and father. And this is backed up, by the way, with a lot of the um, scriptural texts from wisdom literature. For example, in the book of Sirach, it says this, with all your heart, honor your father and do not forget the birth pangs of your mother. Remember that it was of your parents you were born. How can you repay what they have given to you? So you owe them the obedience. You owe them the respect. You owe them the honor because your life is from them. In addition to them caring for you and providing for you and all the different things. And then there's this from Proverbs. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. 
I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. And so you see right here that listening to your parents is supposed to guard you from falling, from stumbling, supposed to allow you not only to walk, but to run freely. And by following the wisdom of your mother and father and heeding their advice and their counsel, first and foremost, obviously, being obedient to God and being trained in godly wisdom, because that is the parent's job, but also even following their practical human advice, I think there's a sort of trust there in your parents' love for you that you need to have. You trust in their love, you trust in their wisdom, you trust that they have more life experience than you, and you accept that and follow that, even if you don't completely understand it. And God says it's gonna be better for you if you do that. And I can look back you know, in my own life and see this is true. How many times have I just listened to my parents would I have saved myself a lot of trouble, right? And I think that every kid should maybe ask themselves that question. If I had just listened to what my mom and dad told me to do, you know, would it have gone better for me? Now, there's a final part of this uh, exhortation from St. Paul. He just gets done talking to children and now he turns to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word for provoke to anger, like that whole word there, can also be um, translated as exasperate. Mm -hmm. In other words, don't be a nag and ride in your kids all the time. Don't, don't frustrate them, discourage them. You have to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord for sure. But you have to be careful not to be a source of discouragement mm -hmm. and frustration. And so this means that parenting takes on a sort of prudential judgment on the part of the parent. They have to really be discerning in the spirit, how hard should I push? How softly should I go? Should I bring this up now? Should I wait to maybe later? Is this something that needs to be confronted? Is this something that I can let work itself out? These are all things that I think parents have to do because if you're just constantly on top of your kids all the time, they're going to get frustrated and then they're not going to want to follow your lead. They're not going to want to listen to your instruction. That doesn't mean that you exasperating them gives them justification for not obeying you. No, we have to go back to that other part because it's right you should obey your parents. Mm -hmm. But like, but nonetheless, you don't want to give them reason to want to disobey you or run in the other direction. So I think that's a really good um, word to parents who, who maybe in their zeal for the good of their kids are a little overbearing. Um, and I know that I need to be mindful of this mm -hmm. myself. So, so I think that's an important word. I think that the key idea that can sum all this up comes from St. John Paul II. In the Theology of the Body, he says that gift or the sincere gift of self is the existential content inscribed in the image of God. That is, that being made in the image and likeness of God 
most fundamentally means that we were created to make the sincere gift of ourselves, to give ourselves for the good of others. Jesus himself reveals this by emptying himself, even accepting death on a cross, right? So within the family, you have various relations of mutual giving. You have the husband giving himself fully to the wife. You have the wife giving herself fully to the husband. You have parents giving themselves together totally to their children. You have children giving themselves to their parents, maybe by way of obedience Mm -hmm. and following Mm -hmm. their lead. And then you have the children who should be serving one another and learning to give the gift of themselves to one another. And so the family becomes a great school of love. And yet this is reflected in its sacred order that you can find in the in the scriptures. So I, I think that's I think it's amazing that the scriptures just don't contradict. I mean, you've got passages from the Old Testament, Proverbs, you got Sirach, you got St. Paul. Uh it, it's great that it's balanced. You know, sometimes people think it's swaying one way or the other, but it's so balanced that uh that it's it's the intention of God and and how he wants the family to be to work really and and how marriage how he wants marriage to work. And yeah. it's been affirmed by pope after pope. Right. So I think that like this is an important thing. This is just the truth of what the family is. Amen. And just like if kids followed the lead of their earthly parents, things would go well. I think we do a lot better in our culture with regards to marriage in the family. If everybody just started listening to what God said marriage and family are about and started to follow his sacred order for it, we'd actually find a flourishing society as a result of that instead of a lot of the mess we find. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Great reflection. Thanks. Peace, my brother. Peace. We are all called to be good stewards, whether that means making wise financial decisions for our families, for our parishes, or for organizations that we may advise or direct. Owning gold and silver is easy, and we're happy to be partnered with St. Joseph's, who has exclusively focused on helping families protect their wealth in gold and silver for over a decade. Their pricing is very competitive, and their dedicated retirement team was recognized last year as only one of two dealers in the nation who meet the stringent criteria of integrity, value, and dependability by an independent trust company. Take the steps today to protect your family from potential financial stress and allocate some of your hard-earned dollars to gold and silver as good stewards. Go to www.stjosephpartners.com forward slash array of hope to learn how you can protect your loved ones at this important moment in history. Again, that is www.stjosephpartners.com forward slash array of hope. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Alanis here with Who's That Saint, where I give you guys three clues on one saint for you to guess before the big reveal. Who's that saint? Clue number one, the saint was never properly beatified or canonized since he was born before both practices, but the church does in fact recognize his sainthood. In fact, every year on his feast day, we celebrate with a special blessing at mass. I'll share more about that once you guys figure out who that saint is. Clue number two, the saint was a bishop and a doctor, not a doctor of the church, but you know, a worldly doctor, which is still quite admirable. Allegedly, one of his patients had a fish bone lodged in their throat and the saint saved their life. Who's that saint? Clue number three, legend has it that he was in prison for his beliefs, but a woman brought two candles to him to illuminate his cell, which is why this saint is often depicted holding two candlesticks in his images. Who's that saint? 
you guessed St. Blaise. You are correct. Although not much is known about St. Blaise, he is quite well known in the church due to the many miracles that have been attributed to his intercession. As I mentioned, every February 3rd, which is his feast day, the church has a special throat blessing held after mass that entails the holding of two candlesticks onto the throat and a prayer for the saint's intercession. St. Blaise is the patron saint of animals, wool trading, and throat illnesses. St. Blaise, pray for us. Hey, we love that you listen to our Reason for Hope, and we want to make it better for you. You can help us do that by filling out our survey. Just click on the URL in the show notes so we can help you dive even deeper into your faith. Welcome back to The Music Corner. This is Jack Arno, Array of Hope's Director of Music and Audio Production. AOH Music recently released Heal Our World, the second single off a three-song EP recorded live at Oceanway Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Heal Our World is a cry out to Jesus to enter our hearts and minds in order to restore our brokenness. Out of his abyss of mercy and infinite love for us, Jesus came to bring salvation and healing to our world. As Christians, we are called to humble ourselves enough to admit that we are in need of mercy and a savior. Christ paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Our good shepherd stood in our place before the Father and through his incarnation, bought for us an ever-flowing fountain of grace, peace, and healing. Lord Jesus, come and heal our world. Our guest today is Kimberly Hahn. She is an American Catholic apologist and author and a member of the Steubenville City Council. She was born into a Presbyterian family and her father was a minister. She is married to apologist and author Scott Hahn. In her own right, she has a Master of Arts in Theological Studies, and she is a wonderful speaker and presenter on the faith and speaks all over the country. Please welcome Kimberly Hahn. So uh, it's so great uh, to be with you here uh, today uh, on this podcast and in this show. Uh, I have a lot of questions to ask you, and and I think, um, uh, you know, my first impression of you is when I had a reversion uh, to the Catholic faith uh, in my 50s, early 50s, and I came across, you know, uh, Home Sweet, uh, Rome Sweet Home. And uh, I said, well, you know, I understand Scott Hahn is really a very influential writer, and I was inspired to read him and didn't realize that it was co-authored by you as well. And as I got yes. into the story, uh, I found it to be really fascinating and really exciting. So I do want to ask you about that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, our viewers may not know that history or that the past of how you became Catholic, but maybe you can share with our audience uh, a little bit about, you know, the Kimberly uh, that grew up uh, with y your father was a preacher, right? And um, right. you know what was that like, and what was your attraction to God early on in your life? Tell me, because you weren't born Catholic, right? Yes, right. tell me a little so bit about that. My dad, 
yeah, my dad is a Presbyterian pastor and uh, he and my mom met on the seminary campus uh, in Pittsburgh, fell in love. My mom always wanted to be married to a pastor um, and both of them had just uh, a total commitment to our Lord and to uh, one another. Um, and I'm their firstborn. So I guarantee you they prayed for me every day <laughs> of my life uh, since they knew I was on the way. They are still living. And my dad assures me that uh, I have his prayers every single day. So I was raised in a very loving Christian home. My dad was no different in the pulpit than he was in our house. Oh. And so unlike uh, some of my friends whose dads were pastors and they really struggled um, with sort of differences between how their fathers were at church and at home, my dad was consistent and, and my mother. Um, both of them challenged us to give everything to Christ. And I would say uh, that is very similarly how we have raised our own children. Um, the non-negotiable is that you give him all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and then do what he tells you to do. And that's how you honor him. That's how you live a united life. Um, when I met Scott, he was a very ardent, reformed mm -hmm. Christian. He looked at the Reformation and felt that that represented his theology the best. Uh, I was a four-point, not a five-point Calvinist and he, when we met, and he really worked hard at getting me to be a five-point Calvinist. Mm. Uh, we, we went to seminary, and his degree was to be able to be a pastor, a Master of Divinity. I worked on a two-year Master of Arts in Theology, and we graduated at the same time. At the time that we graduated, Scott still held to the Westminster Confession that any Pope seated on the papal throne could be thought of as the Antichrist. <laughs> um, and, and he really believed that with conviction. So for him, as he began to wrestle with the two pillars of the Reformation, um, that our authority is scripture alone, not with tradition, and that um, we are justified by faith alone apart from works. Um, when he began to actually rescue, I'm sorry, wrestle uh, with the scriptures on those two pillars, he began to feel that they weren't solid and really had more questions than answers. So even though he was ordained a Presbyterian pastor and he was serving in a little parish while teaching at their high school, he had so many questions he felt he needed to pull away from those positions and go back into full-time study to figure out, was he wrong? Was mm. he um really in serious error. And one of his professors had told him that if at the time of the Reformation, Luther was wrong, we should be on our knees begging Rome to let us back in. And that was in the back of his mind. So as he explored these things, began to realize scripture did not teach justification by faith alone. Um, that Luther had inserted the word alone in his translation of Romans 3.28 because that fit his theology better. And where the two words not alone and just, justification and, and works come together in James 2.24 were not justified by faith alone, that Scott uh, said, okay, wait a minute, my if I believe in scripture, then 
I have to let scripture form my theology, not um, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And of course, Luther, the way he dealt with James was to call it an epistle of straw and question whether or not it ought to be included in the canon of scripture. And Scott knew that was not a safe way of having his theology um, formed. So, so we both came to a conviction about justification, I would say, right around the time of our graduation. Um, but again, for him, that was like one of two pillars holding up his theology. For me, it was like, okay, well, that's, a, that's growth. That's a, an understanding. We're letting scripture inform us. Again, you could, I always thought you could be Catholic and Christian, but why would I want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, so for Scott, these were like moments of being knocked off his horse. And <laughs> right. I am completely rethinking everything. For me, I was now, I had one little baby and I was expecting number two. And I really wanted to just get on with family life. And what do you mean that we need to to rethink things? At one point he came through the the living room, and he said, I just need you to know that we may be headed toward the Episcopal Church. And I just cried because my dad was a Presbyterian pastor. My my right. uncle was a Presbyterian pastor. I had always wanted to be a Presbyterian pastor, and then I had a brother studying to be one, and of course, Scott was one. And it was like, why would we become Episcopalian? Yeah. But he was thinking, you know, that was more liturgical, and it was, um, right, right. it had a priesthood, and you know, that, that that seemed to be on the trajectory. And then, you know, a couple of years later, he pauses as he walks through and says, actually, I think we might be headed toward the Catholic Church. Well, and let, I let just me, looked at him and, yeah. yeah. Let me just stop you for a second, because there's, okay. so, there's so much okay. here to unpack. The thing that struck me when you started sharing your story, you know, in, in the book, you know, Rome Sweet Home, um, yeah. I loved, uh, well, it was very dramatic in a sense of, you were very conflicted. You were torn. I mean, it seemed like you were really like, what is happening? My world is falling apart. You know, here I have, you know, I was yes. raised by, you know, by a pastor. My husband, I mean, I've, I'm paraphrasing, of course. I read this book probably 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but it was like, you know, my husband, everything, my whole world now is, is shifting gears. I didn't marry this, right? You kind of were revealing that, you know, what do I do? Um, and there had to be a component of, where you sort of raised your arms up to trust, you know, to trust that something is happening to my husband. Because there was a time where he even felt like, is this going to, you know, is this going to wreck our marriage? I mean, he, he was, you know, he was kind of torn and didn't know where it was going to go. So I wanted you to bring, I want to bring the listeners and the viewers back to that moment where, you know, there, what was going on in your heart, in your soul? What was God telling you with this mm-hmm. conflict and how you came to church? yourself. Yeah. It felt like abandonment. Mm. I would say for Scott, he he wanted to make sure that he was planting his family squarely in the church Christ founded. And as that sort of horror story for him became more of a romance and he felt like drawn into the fullness of the faith in the church, that's where he wanted to plant his children and our family. And for me, it was, okay, so you've come to a realization you can be Catholic and Christian. Why would we be? Um, I wanted to share life 
Christian life as I understood it with our children. And, um, and so it was, it was a very deep level of conflict, um, interiorly, I would say I could tell it was a very difficult journey for Scott. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't like he simply wanted to make life difficult for us. He had no idea what this could mean. Um, could he even be a theologian in the Catholic Church if he came in as a Protestant? Could he be trusted? You know, would he be trusted by people? Um, all he'd ever wanted to do was serve our Lord and teach the truth. You know, Scott tried a lot of different tactics, you know, to have different conversations. And at one point he said to me, ask me anything. And I said, if I ask you anything, I know you'll be articulate and you'll, you, you could persuade me of anything. And so I don't want to ask you questions. And he said, so if I can convince you of anything, then basically you're saying I have nothing to say. I mean, it, and, and for him, that was a tremendously difficult position because, of course, he did come to deep realization of why he was making this momentous change and wanted to share it with me, wanted to share this um, at the core of our family. I mean, there's just so many layers of challenge in all of this. What I did believe very deeply, I'd come to a conviction before Scott, actually, um, when we were back in seminary about the issue of contraception. Without going into detail about it at the moment, I came to a conviction against it that I didn't believe that was a Christian response and shared all of my information with Scott, and we he joined me in that conviction. And I really believe that the Lord used are responding to truth in a profound way, laying the foundation of greater respect for the Catholic Church and eventual um, seeing the fullness of the faith. So when I discovered that I was expecting, um, my first thought was, oh, I'm pregnant. It's my birthday. And I just found out I'm pregnant with our little girl. And then how is this child going to be baptized? And mm. I wrestled for months. <clears throat> and I just came to Scott about six weeks before she was born. And I said, um, since you're the spiritual leader of the home, and we both believe in infant baptism, can you set up a baptism in the Catholic Church? for her. And when we went, I didn't know if the priest would even think I was a Christian. Wow. And it was just, it was that important to me that she be baptized. And so we went, and of course, he was very gracious. He, um, he treated me every bit as a Christian. And the prayers over her, I'd never witnessed a Catholic baptism. They were just so beautiful. Everything I would have wanted mm -hmm. her to be prayed for. Mm -hmm. Now, in his little homily, he was talking about baptism, and I was like, oh, God, don't confuse my little boys with all this nonsense, you know, and he invoked saints. It was like, oh, we shouldn't be talking to these dead people. I mean, in my spirit, I was certainly fighting, you yeah. know, but at the same time, all I knew when I left there, I, I didn't know what God had done for Hannah, but I knew that he had opened my heart in some way. And my dad had challenged me, my dad, who had no interest in my becoming Catholic, had challenged me that I had to keep praying all the time, yielding myself completely to the Lord. 
And he said, you know, do you pray every day? Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Do whatever you want me to do. Say whatever you want me to say and give away whatever you want me to give away. And a little sarcastically, I said, Dad, I don't pray that prayer these days. It was probably a month or so before Hannah was born. And he was genuinely surprised. He was like, Kimberly, honey, you you can't tell God where you will and won't go. Like, this isn't about you becoming Catholic. I don't think you'll ever become Catholic, but you've got to keep Jesus as the Lord of your life. And, you know, if it had been Scott, I would have thought, oh, it's just another tactic, you know, to try to get me to become Catholic. But coming from my dad, I could hear it, but I, I, I couldn't imagine praying it. And so he said, just pray every day for the grace to be able to pray that prayer. Mm. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And when I prayed it, it was about 30 days. When I prayed it, my thought was, I'm saying to Christ, okay, I'm just going to follow Scott like a moron into the Catholic Church. It's I'm just giving up. And that isn't the way God acts. And when I prayed it, I really sensed him say to my heart, you know, the cage that you thought I was going to lock you in is the cage you've been putting yourself in. And now you've unlocked the door and I want you to come fly with me. Like, I want you to study all these things and, and find out what is the truth. And I felt it was like an invitation from the spirit in a whole different way. So that was, that was probably uh, one year into Scott being Catholic. Mm. We moved to Joliet, Illinois, and he watched the children so I could spend some time in study. I met with my brother who was uh, studying to be a pastor and, a, and his senior pastor. And um, after a few weeks going over justification and all the different passages, they bowed out. They basically said, you know, we're we're feeling some confusion by what you're presenting. And I'm like, fight for me. It's <laughs> what's the truth here? And and um, my brother's words were, uh, I, I'm studying for my ordination exams, and your questions are messing up my mind. Mm. It's like, well, look, if it's true, then I'm not the only one who has to wrestle with this. And he was like, yeah, okay, but I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. So I really was on my own in a lot of ways. God, of course, was directing me to various books and articles, and I did have some ability from my study and master's work um, to be able to do research. And but it was still three years um, of wrestling and praying and coming to some new convictions, and then. You know, having that sense as I sat in mass of it's only making sense because I'm being sucked into the void. Like, I'm not hearing a Protestant voice here, so I, I, I've got to read more Protestants and <laughs> just really wrestling very deeply. I will say, as much as Scott longed for me to become Catholic and certainly poked and prodded and, you know, suggested things and argued, he he knew I had to be able to to know that Christ himself was the one drawing me into the church. It was not a smooth process. Um, and there were, there were conversion moments mm. um, where certain things made more sense than others. But um, several key doctrines had really fallen into place for me 
And I decided to sign up for RCIA just because there was a very winsome pastor who, you know, said, Kimberly, I want you in the class, you know? And so I said, well, with no promises, I'm not saying I'm becoming Catholic. And he was like, (laughs) no, no, just come to the class. And it was a night out, you know, for me. So Scott had to put the kids to bed and that was kind of nice. And, and I did have more understanding than several of the people in the class. So I could see where I was on the journey compared to others. And, um, but I really did not think it would be that soon. And on on Ash Wednesday, I dropped off our children to my at my sister's so I could go look for housing in Steubenville. Scott had been given a position at the university and we needed housing. So I went and and I was just doing kind of a general prayer in the van, Lord, you know, what do you want me to give up for Lent? And uh, we normally did, you know, things that are like chocolate and pop and and I, I didn't hear a voice, but I really sensed the Lord said, I want you to give up. I want you to give up you. And you, you believe many, many things. You can trust that the church will keep teaching you, keep guiding you. I want you to give up. And because it was so clearly to me, the Lord and not Scott, mm. Um, I said, yes, I said, yes, with all my heart. And, um, beautiful. It's great. I talked to Scott that night. He was out in California at a conference and he said, you know, people are asking, what do you think about your wife? I'm praying for her. And he said, no pressure, but I would love to tell them what you're thinking. And, and I, so then I relayed that story and uh, I, I said, it, it is going to be this Easter. And we both just wept over the phone. Hey, if you're enjoying this interview, be sure to check out the full video version on the Array of Hope channel. Subscribe for free at watch.arrayofhope.net. Then download the app by searching Array of Hope on your mobile device, Apple TV, or Roku. It's a beautiful story, Kimberly, and I, I you know, I, I, I could see how, um, I mean, often God does this, right? He brings us to our knees. He offers all kinds of confusion. He des- He puts a, a desire in our heart to seek him out, and I could just see as you're sharing the story, and I'm re- reliving what I read, you know, uh, he certainly had a purpose for you and has a purpose for you, and the work that you're doing today is evidence of that. I mean, it's so good. It's so powerful, and you're affecting so many families uh, and marriages. So, you know, um, I mean, that's how I was drawn back to the. I mean, I'm a cradle Catholic, but I had a period where I left and came back, and you know, essentially, you know, the Lord brought me to my knees, just in confusion, wondering, you know, what what's the deal, you know? So sometimes, you know, the Lord creates these moments in our lives only to bring us closer to him. And sometimes with our viewers and listeners, sometimes when we're struggling, we have to remember that, that if there's any remnant of faith left in us, there's a reason why things are happening and God is always working. And I always share yeah. this with my team, you know, you live your life forward, but if you if if you recognize the grace, you understand it backwards, you know, and it's yeah. beautiful. And I wanted to ask, you know, much of your writing and ministry seeks to encourage Catholic married couples and families, especially Catholic mothers. Uh, how did you discern the Lord was calling you then, uh, once you became Catholic, to do this kind of work? Yeah. Well, I had always taught Proverbs, well, I shouldn't say always, but I had taught Proverbs 31 several times in my home 
um, among college students. And then um, in in Joliet, I wanted to share these thoughts. And, and of course, there were so many additional insights in becoming Catholic. So when we came to Steubenville, and I, I was a new Catholic, um, I did a Bible study on the rosary, and that was that was fascinating. I would never have imagined that would be the first Bible study that I would do in our home as a Catholic. But of course, there's so much scripture behind every one of these mysteries. And, mm. and so it was, it was a beautiful experience for me to go deeper in my faith and deeper in understanding and praying the rosary with this group of women. But then I thought, I really want to challenge them about being Catholic wives and moms. And so I would have Bible studies in my home between 50 to 100 women would gather, um, and now many of them have their children returning to Franciscan University, so it's been over many years um, that, that I've done this. About every three or four years, I would offer this study, and the more I taught it, the more I thought, well, if I could put it in book form, I could reach a lot more people that will never be able to stop in my home for a Bible study, and so I was thinking it was a book and I took all my materials on a retreat. And when I returned home, I said to Scott, it isn't one book, it's four books. And I think we should videotape the Bible study. And, uh, and he was open to the idea, but we had to wait until someone could make a big donation to the St. Paul Center to make it happen. And that happened about a year later. So um, I filmed 24 Bible studies and six of them are in each of four books. So that is, and now I'm just beginning to work on a fifth one that will focus on grace-filled grandparenting. Mm. Um, and I think this is so important. You know, Vatican II has this call to holiness, the universal call to holiness, and that married people are not left out, that in our vocation, we have been called to live faithful lives. It needs to fit our vocation. So it, it's not that my home's a monastery. And yet at the same time, how do I, how do I communicate the love and grace of God to every individual in my home? So my spouse, to each of my children, to their spouses, now to their children, um, but also in hospitality, welcoming in people, um, having that motherhood uh, expand. And for me, that's also been an expansion, even politically. Um, and as we receive the grace of the sacraments of confession and the Eucharist, um, we're strengthened in our actual vocation, not, not an end round the vocation, but through that vocation, um, through uh, the way we we clean our house and organize our house and have it be beautiful and, and the grounds, all, every, every little aspect uh, as we feed our families and clothe them, it's all an expression of grace and love. And the whole goal is to be in heaven together forever. And so, and I, I think the church's teaching is so rich about um, about that. So I have a podcast called Beloved and Blessed uh, through the St. Paul Center, and I'm slowly teaching through all of those books. Um, and in addition, it, it just seems as if the door continues to open 
now through the grandchildren, being able to share so much more of my heart and my my spiritual life with them and seeing seeing those connections um, that our Lord has individually, you know, with these oldest grandchildren as they are saying, yes, I want to follow you, Jesus, you mm, know, as a beautiful. Catholic. It is beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are you finding that uh, women are struggling with uh, running a household these days? Is, does the, <laughs> does, is the Bible a good resource for them or is it community? Um, what would you recommend to a young uh, mom starting her family that's struggling, you know, to, to mm-hmm. kind of keep it all together? Carving out some, some time for some individual prayer. Um, it is amazing how when moms even set the alarm to get up 15 minutes earlier, some little child in the house hears it <laughs> and seems to be eager to join. So I think at times you need to appeal to your spouse. Look, I, I, for me to have 15 minutes of prayer, I just need you to be able to hold the baby or or manage the things so I can actually step away and start that day with the Lord. Um, my first spiritual director said to me, each each night when we go to sleep, it's a little bit like a small death. And in the morning, it's a little bit like a little resurrection. And we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. And I think it's so important to recognize I'm a daughter of the King of Kings before I move into action and try to be a channel of grace to all those precious little people. Um, As much as you can include the children in prayer, I think that's really powerful and important. So we had a a morning prayer um, ritual that just, it, it took place before we did school. And I homeschooled for 26 years. But Scott and I, Uh, We'd have breakfast and everybody's dressed and then we would meet in the family room and we would, you know, go through several different things. So a morning offering, um, we would read the gospel of the day and talk a little bit about it. We would read a saint of the day and we would read about a country and pray about that country. And then we would do prayer little to big, just just, um, talking to Jesus, extemporaneous prayer um, not lengthy, and then we would close with some rope prayers, and our Father, a glory be, a Hail Mary, and Scott would bless the children, and then we were off just to our school time. Mm. Um, we did an after-dinner decade of the rosary, after dinner until uh, enough of the littles became big, and then Scott said, okay, now we want to do a full rosary, and, uh, and just really recommend, you know, incorporate prayer Mm -hmm. into your family life. We also um, made daily mass as much a priority as we could. I would say we average probably at least three a week. Um, And I think it's important when you hit the teen years uh, to do two different things. One, let them know that this is what the family is going to do. And they can say, you know, even in the Han house, oh, do we have to go to mass? And it's like, we don't have to. We, and they would chime in, get to, good. But the thing is, if it is what we believe it is, actually our Lord present in the Eucharist, then no matter what is going on in the life of that teen, bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. Let Jesus do his thing. And it's not that he can't be present in a spiritual way in your home, 
but he is actually really present in the Eucharist. Now, on the flip side, my husband told our teenagers, without telling me the details, if you need to get to confession before you can receive, and you don't want the awkwardness of sitting there and not receiving, let me know. I will find you a priest who will hear your confession. No questions asked. And I know that really made a difference. But I can tell you, you know, I might, there might have been a little going back and forth with one of my teens. We would go to Mass and we came back home. Something was different. Something had changed in our, our interaction. And I know it's because they were in the presence of God mm. and reminded of who they were. And I was reminded of who I was. And there were times with little ones that I could feel like all the grace. I just got has already evaporated. It's already been spent <laughs> before we walk back out that door, you know. And don't pinch yeah. your brother. Don't do this. Yeah. Don't do that. Take him up. But it was better that we were there than not. Right. And I had, I had some friends who said, well, in the teen years, we just don't press it. We just, you know, they have to go Sundays. That's it. But I, there are only a few years that you can decide. Yeah. And if the mass is what we believe it is. I want to, as long as I can, I wanted to bring my children yeah. to Jesus. Receiving the Eucharist, amen. There's so much that, you, uh, that you're doing there, Kimberly. Is there anything that you want to share right now with our viewers and listeners that, are, that you're involved in right now or that you want to promote? I, I know you talked about your podcast, Beloved and Blessed, which is an awesome mm -hmm. podcast. Uh, any books so that are on deck? I know you, you shared your latest book. You want to talk about that? Well, there is a lot on my heart about um, grandparenting. And there's some beautiful saints that I've been reading about uh, who had tremendous influence as grandparents. I do think when we use the phrase, all I can do is pray, we haven't really understood how powerful prayer is. Mm. And uh, I was challenged, I felt by the Lord a, a maybe a year and a half ago, um, that I needed to pray much more individually for every one of my family members and and working my way down and I I start with uh, my parents and then Scott and then you know all my child adult children and those who are married their spouses and then the grandchildren in birth order um, where I take each day I offer my rosary and mass for that individual child or in a yeah, person. And that's just been a really powerful way to pray. Um, I also have a journal for every grandchild. It's something I wish I could have done in the thick of raising six children, but I just didn't have the time. And I don't meet very many parents who do. But as a grandparent, I feel like I can do this. And so I, as soon as I know a child is on the way, I begin a journal. And in the journal, I just share my heart that day. So I probably, um, I don't make a commitment to how frequently I will write in their journals. Um, but I share my walk of faith. Um, it might be a scripture I memorized that day that I want to share it with, um, when I've just been with them, I will reflect back on my time with each individual child, what it was like, you know, you're eight years old, and these were the things that were of interest to you, and we talked about this, and um, it, it's just been something very special. Sometimes I'll take the journals, and I will trace their little hands or feet, mm. um, and I think uh, probably they'll be, I haven't decided if I'm giving them the journals when they're 18 or when they're 21, um, but it has been 
very special for me to feel like uh, there will be something they treasure when I'm gone that um, they can reflect back and say, okay, this is this is what Nana wanted me to know about life, about love, about, um, you know, I might, I might write a page about how much I love their papa and why, or how grateful I am for my parents. And I hope that they're always grateful for theirs, et cetera. And because I start a journal, as soon as I know that a baby's on the way, um, we have had 10 grandchildren miscarried. I have not known beforehand for all of them um, because sometimes they're kind of waiting to share the good news and then Mm -hmm. they find Mm -hmm. out the baby dies. But in several times I've already started the journal and when the child is miscarried, I give that journal to the mom and dad and just say, you know, this is this child's journal and I want you to have it. And, and I will reflect on the value of every soul and, my own sense of loss um, with that little one. And it's, it's so part of what I hope to do in writing a book about grace-filled grandparenting is to talk about um, not just my experiences, although I want to share that. Um, I, we have 21 living grandchildren. Um, wow. But I also hope to interview lots of grandparents mm. to gather lots of wonderful ideas and, uh, and share it. I love it. Yes. So, uh, Kimberly, you've been a delight. This is a great, you know, great time spending with you. I got to know you a little bit better. You're very insightful, and uh, I pray that our viewers and listeners uh, will be impacted by our conversation. Uh, and God bless you and your family and Scott and all your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Great to God be with bless you. you. God bless you. I am so glad that you joined us for this episode. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with others. Let everybody know. We need to let as many people know as possible. Really, we need to let everybody know about God. Please help us. Also, please comment in the comment sections. Give us an endorsement. It really helps. We also ask you to prayerfully consider going to our donation page and help us in our work. Just go to our website at arrayofhope.org. Also join us on social media. It keeps us connected to our faith through our music, our videos, and daily reflections. There's lots of great stuff to share with you all the time. We pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet daily on Instagram at 3 p.m. So please join us as we all pray together as a universal church. Our guest next time will be Father Carlos Martins. It's going to be really informative. And lastly, please engage with our sponsors. They have been vetted by us here at Array of Hope, and you can directly help share in the efforts of the Universal Church and spreading the gospel. So thanks for joining us today, and there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Peace.